Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine, LD at Large. One of the things that I've always been praised for is my ability to tell stories in a, in a personal manner. So I decided I would take today to kind of reach out to somebody who is an amazing storyteller and he has such great stories. I hope that this will be a great way to kind of pass the time while you're in self-isolation. So I, I hope you guys will all join me in welcoming Tim McKenna. He is a production manager for Live Nation out of Boston. Thank you so much for making an hour to sit and chat with me, Tim. Well, Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, uh, it is, uh, I've been around for a long time. So I, I think a lot of your, your listeners uh, hopefully have heard of me and, uh, you know, we, hopefully we had a good experience together. Uh, anybody who's listening, pretty much if you've done a tour through Boston, you've either worked directly or indirectly with Tim and uh, he's, he's a great storyteller. Some of the, some of the stories that he's uh, gone through are just, you can sit for, you can waste an hour of a load in sitting and chatting with Tim anytime. So uh, I just wanted to jump straight in, Tim. I, your story is so interesting. You're one of the ones that came from lighting to production manager, and you're kind of one of the guys who can see it from all sides, and you, you, you actually are aware of the requirements from all sides of the industry. So I kind of wanted to take some time to archive how you got to this position. And uh, I totally want to just start from the very beginning. Like, how did you get into this industry? All right. Well, I was uh, an unemployed bartender and uh, I was uh, <laughs> dating a, a woman who was uh, doing monitors at the, uh, the legendary Paradise Rock Club in Boston. At that time, it was called the Paradise Theater. And the Paradise was a legendary showcase club. Uh, Don had built it uh, to rival the, uh, the, you know, to to match the bottom line in, in New York and, and a lot of the other showcase clubs. And uh, so it opened in 77. And I started there. And I'm sorry that the timeline is a little fuzzy because it was the 80s, you know. And, uh, <laughs> I started there. I, you know, for years and years and years, I always said it was the, uh, in 1979, but it might've been 1980. And uh, as I said, it, 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 there, there, was some, there was some fuzzy math going on back then. But I, uh, so I was uh, dating this woman, I was waiting for her to get off work. And the production manager at the, of the, the, of the uh, club at that time came up to me and said, hey, while you're waiting for her to get off work, why don't you help us with this loadout? And I said, okay. And uh, for $3 an hour, I, you know, the next thing I knew, I was out in the alley behind the paradise, pushing Billy Joel's piano up a ramp. And that was my very first show. Uh, he had bought an, uh, I think it was four S4s aside to the paradise. And, and the paradise had a PA, but, you know, Billy, you know, decided he was going to go back to the clubs. And, you know, he was already pretty well established in 1980. And he recorded a live album. And, uh, so, uh, but I remember the four S fours, and I said, "Wow, these are amazing! The four hundred fifty-three pounds of fun, you know." And uh, <laughs> there was there was four of them, and uh, the bottom two weren't even plugged in. They were just to elevate the. Uh, they were just to hold up the other two. But um, so I'm pushing Billy Joel's piano up a ramp, and next week uh, the guy called me up and he said, "Hey, can you help us with the equipment?" And then you can run the spotlight. And I said, I don't know how to run a spotlight. They said an orangutan can run a spotlight. You know, we'll, we'll show you how to do it. <laughs> and uh, so there was, there I am, I'm, I'm working, uh, you know, I started doing uh, load-ins and spotlight work. And uh, 
we had a, a you know inherited um so i started mainly working with the lighting department and uh you know and uh and doing uh doing backline and in those days um you know band bands would travel in a van and the crew traveled in a, in a box truck and there was three guys usually in the front seat of a box truck and they drive all night do a show all day drive all night do a show all day there was tour buses weren't there yet you know so it's a different world and uh i think it was it was good that i worked my way up through that um, uh, process i learned on the job i didn't know an, an svt from a, a fresnel in those days you know but i learned on the job most people would have run run away screaming having to push boxes for three dollars an hour but you i don't know if you're into masochism or what but apparently you you enjoyed it you came back for more i did i did and uh i kept doing it and i kept doing it and um and i learned a little bit about lighting and um and then eventually uh the the lighting guy stopped coming to work and they said okay you're the lighting guy and uh <laughs> What's I, became lighting the lighting guy? I became the lighting director of the paradise and i inherited a uh, system that was a uh two by 24 no momentaries um and uh you know just a, a two scene a two scene board 24 24k of dimming two, uh, 24 1k um cans and then uh you know a bunch of fresnels a bunch of three and a half inch licos and some uh 500 and 1000 watt uh, uh bar cans so with no design theory or color knowledge or anything you just knew that you wanted to make lights blink and they put you behind the console and you started started throwing faders I started throwing faders and I didn't know what colors went together and, you know, and, uh, but I, I talked, you know, one of the things that I've always done in this business is I've asked questions and, um, mm -hmm. I taught for a lot of years and I taught, I taught the kids. I said, you have two eyes and two ears and only one mouth. And if you use them proportionately, you'll be okay. So I looked and I tried to figure out stuff and then I checked out my, my theory by asking a smart guy, you know? So, I said, how was the light show? He said, you leave your scenes up too long. And so I started, you know, being a little bit more blinky. I never was a blinky guy. I came up in the era when we used to light the money, you know, and, and you know, the, uh, I don't think I would make it today because, you know, there are very few lights point toward the band nowadays. But, uh, right. and, but you know, so I, I, I came from this school of light the money and, you know, you'd, you'd have, you know, different, uh, you know, how to put mauve and, 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 and green together and, you know, and whether you could use it at, you know, opposing it to each other. And so I learned, you know, geometry and the symmetry and, and all of that. On, I learned it all on the job. So it sounds like when you were coming up, you were still part of the camp where you were loading in, setting up, running the show, and then still pushing boxes out. It sounds like you were, you were well aware of 20, 22 hour days. I, I still that, do that to this day. Uh, you know, I'm 40 years into the career. I still push some boxes. And uh, I don't think, you know, I have kids come to me and they say, you know, I want to intern with you. I said, great, you know, go over there and push that box up the ramp. But I said, oh, you don't understand. I want to be a tour manager. I said, oh, I understand fully. Go push that box up the ramp. And if they don't want to do it, uh, it shows me, um, you know, that they just don't want to learn that. Um, you know, I learned stagecraft by, by pushing those boxes and talking to talking to the backline guys and talking to the audio guys, you know, and I had a brief audio career, you know, and uh, a lot of people in Boston didn't feel that it was brief enough, but I, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I did, I did do, uh, uh, you know, some sound. Uh, I worked at this one club called uh, the uh, Spit and uh, it was a punk rock uh, discotheque and we had, uh, you know, they they would have a band that would just oh, they'd open up the curtain and this band would play for 20 minutes, and I said, well, you you know that I'm a light guy, right? And they said, yeah, but you're not this other guy, and we hate him. So you know, that's that's how I got my uh, that's how I started in the audio business. I had another job where I I did audio. I got 35 bucks a night and all the beer I could drink. I made it into a hundred dollar night every week. So. You know, the more drinks uh, you could drink, the, be the better your paycheck was. 
that's absolutely right. You know, just try to make it worth my while to, to, to go up to Somerville and do sound. But, Any drinks left on the table is you're literally leaving money on the table. I could have had those. This is fair drinks. enough. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but eventually, um, you know, I had to get out of lighting because um, I couldn't handle all the drinking. But uh, the, uh, <laughs> you know, we you're just started, too much money. We know we just thought that high alcohol content and high voltage seemed to go together, and uh, I don't think it did. <laughs> so, but, when did you um, decide that you actually had to do this for more than beer money? Well, it it was just a slow, slow, slow progression, you know, uh, especially financially. Um, I, uh, I, I was the lighting director there for a lot of years, and. Uh, um, I took a, a short break and I worked over at the Channel Club and I, I did a little bit of touring, not very much, um, mostly van touring. I, I ended up going to uh, Florida with Peter Torque Band, you know, when, uh, and uh, the one great thing about that is, so we didn't get, uh, we got stiffed by the promoter who brought us down there for three shows, but uh, I did get to see the space shuttle take off. So the very third uh, space shuttle took off at, at Cape Canaveral. And my friend uh, who was uh, the bass player in the band, his father worked for the Air Force and got us uh, back Cape passes. And we, we got to see a space shuttle take off. That is one of the hidden benefits of the touring, even as a, on a bus or van tours. You do get to be in some unique places at some unique times. Uh, it's it's tough to get there sometimes, but it is. sometimes it's, it's the, those magic moments kind of make it worth it. Yeah, so you know, just the uh, so I came back to the paradise in um, in '84, and um, the uh, production manager leaves again, and they said, "Okay, well, you're the production manager now." And I said, "Okay, so what do I do?" <laughs> they said, "Advance the shows," and uh, so. In those days, we didn't have fax machines, we didn't have pagers, we didn't have, uh, you know, I would get, the uh, the runner would bring over hard copies of riders, and um, and I'd sit in my office every day and wait for people to call me, because, you know, there weren't production lines in these dressing rooms, and there, um, so people would call you from a payphone, and you had that stupid sprint number, which was about 45 digits, and if you got one wrong, you had to dial 10, 10 digits and then you had to dial the sprint number in there. If you got one wrong, you had to start all over again. And so uh, people would call you up and, um, and you know, we'd, we'd go over, uh, you know, in those days, a, a lot of people were bringing piano, uh, grand pianos, uh, you know, the, uh, a lot of uh, B3 organs. And, um, you know, it was a different, a, a different uh, era, but, uh, you know, I learned, uh, once again, I learned on the job and, one of the things that I learned was just to try to, to do, to help the bands present the best possible show that they could. Advancing shows before email was a month long process. You had to have shows advanced months in advance. You, there was no like, Hey, we're, we're going to be at your venue tomorrow. Can you have this available? I would imagine that you had to be so far ahead of the game back then. Yes and no. There were some days when you wouldn't hear from them and you would just write on the advance sheet, you know, and I, and I still use pencil and paper advance sheets and, you know, um, and, but some days you would just write punt and, you know, you just drop back five and punt. And that was the, you know, like we just would, uh, you know, show up and wait for the bands and they'd show up and, you know, we'd load them in and, you know, and if they didn't have it, you know, we we'd wing it, you know, and um, in, in those days, I was the king of saving the day, and uh, because I didn't do the advancing very well, so, you know, <laughs> I, but I, <laughs> you know, so I was always having to save the day, and uh, as I got better at advancing, I found out that I didn't have to save the day as much, because I had all the stuff, you know, sitting there. <laughs> that's, that's great advice, if, if you lack forethought, you better be good on your toes. And, uh, but, but all those years of being on my toes has, has helped me, you know, to get to where I am, you know, the, uh, you know, but, um, you know, that in those days, you know, the, um, the, the paradise was, was, a, you know, fertile, fertile ground, you know, that um, everybody in Boston said that they were at the show, but I was actually there when you two came in as an opening act 
and they were opening for this band that uh, uh, the Warner Brothers really thought was really high on. It was called Bandit or Baruga Bandit, and uh, the uh, but they somehow put you two on on the show, and uh, and you know as I said, there was a huge huge record company push uh, around this band. Uh, but all the uh, the cool kids in in Boston had bought a, an import copy of of the Boy album, and so the, Par- the Paradise is sold out um, on this. You know, it was a dollar for a show or something like that for BCN, and uh, so all these people are there, and U two plays, and 450 out of the 550 people left, and this poor band had to play to 100 people. And, you know, and the record company guys are just like scratching their heads. They could not figure out, you know, oh, we, you know, this band is not doing anything, even though we're throwing tons and tons of money at them. And, um, you know, sometimes you just, you know, that's not how it works. Yeah, I would imagine but, you had to sit that front of house just the same. Oh, yeah. Whether no, we 100 uh, or 500 know, people. You, you, your, your job is, is still the same. Yeah, no, we... Uh, you know, we, uh, I remember once I was uh, having, a, you know, like I was hanging out with Finn after uh, a, a, a Bare Naked Ladies show at, at down at Great Woods. And uh, they had just sold out two Great Woods shows. And we were talking about, you know, uh, all the uh, different shows that we had done together. And, uh, and I said, I can't believe, you know, you're selling 40,000 tickets for this band. And he says, yeah, Tim, I remember when we were selling 60 tickets back at the Paradise. And... Uh, you know, I, one of the things about working all these different venues, and uh, and I did work every single venue in Boston, especially all through the '90s, is that um, you know, like I would I would I would be there at the Paradise, I would be there at Avalon, I would be there at the summer at, at the Orpheum, I would be there at, at um, the Harbor Lights, and then I would be there at Great Woods, and they'd go, "Can't we get rid of you, Tim? We can't, you know, like we're tired of seeing you." And I said, "Nope." You're, you're, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm your guy. But, um, you know, so, but when I started it, um, it was a different model. You know, bands would, would tour, you know, and they would lose money, you know, to tour and they would tour, tour to support records. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so they, they would go on these club tours and make zero money uh, they used to give us T-shirts to wear to promote their band. You know, that wasn't a, a revenue stream yet. Merchandise was not a revenue stream yet. You right. know, they would give us the T-shirts and uh, then, um, you know, but the rec- because the record company had printed them up or some or what they call badges, which were pins, you know, that had the band's name on them. And, you know, we'd wear the pins and be super punk rock or whatever, you know. And uh but people would, you know, bands would it would tour to support records. Nowadays, they tour to support their family. Yeah. You know, and so it's the model has has changed in these forty years, but for the longest time, touring was a was a loss leader profession. Bands would 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 tour and lose money, and they and they would happy to do it, and they would get tour support, and they would have to pay the record company back. But, uh, you know, but if they could sell that record, you know, then, um, then, you know, then they were going to hit, uh, especially the British bands. We did a lot of, uh, of the British bands when they came over. And, um, you know, for them to break the American market, you know, if they could do that, you know, they could be huge in Europe. But if they could break America, it was like hitting mega bucks. And uh, so it, we, we would do a lot of, of, of British bands at the Paradise, we, you know, the uh, Boston was a center for you know it was it was like Little London, you know, the, there was a, an import record scene, and there was a really cool scene going on, and you know there were some great Boston bands that were coming up in that era, and uh, it was it was a good time to get into the business, and even though it was just an accident that I did it. Yeah, Boston being so close to so many other major cities, I would imagine that would be a great first place to come and really cut their teeth. And, uh, it was, if- uh, it, it, you know, and, um, you know, my, my lot in life has been that either I'm the first uh, day on the tour and nobody knows what's going on, or I'm the last day on the tour and everybody hates <laughs> each other. So that was a, 
That was the, uh, you know, because in Boston, you're either starting the tour there or you're ending the tour there if you started out on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So what was it that kept you local to Boston and uh, off the road? I I don't know. You know, I, I, I was a house guy, uh, you know, and that was just what I was. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, um, I did do a little bit of touring, um, but... I, um, for some reason, um, the, uh, the touring thing just never really appealed to me that much. Uh, was, I was kind of a homebody and, uh, I got, I got married in, uh, 1986, you know, and I had, I had a kid in 87. And so kind of made, just made sense to, to stick around at home. That's good. That's awesome. It's good to know that entertainment can support a family in a home situation. Uh, I would imagine yes. you had many hours away, but you could still at least be home. You could return home daily. Yeah, and uh, but in a way, there, you know, I have my hands on and attended, you know, for a while there, um, about 250 uh, shows a year. And wow. uh, so that, you know, I would get up in the morning and go to work and then I'd come home late at night and uh you know so it was like being on a tour bus but i had to drive myself and i remember um you know some falling asleep at the wheel and, and some other stuff you know I, one time i you know just just a few years ago i'd coming home from uh xfinity center which was great woods you know and um i i must have fallen asleep at the wheel and i don't even know how long i'd been driving after i was asleep but I remember I got to my town and I was less than probably a half mile from my home and uh, I had no idea where I was. I had to turn the GPS on in my car to figure out how to get home from where I was. And I was like a block away from my house. So, wow. you know, it, 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 you know, so the 22 hour days, um, you know, they, uh, now they're starting to get to me a little bit, you know, I'm in, in my sixties and uh, it's a little bit harder to, uh, to, to maintain them, but I still do, I still do it. But, um, but it, yeah, I, I it is, uh, you know, the, uh, the family life suffered a little bit, but uh, you know, I, I was, uh, old school, you know, we, I was the primary breadwinner. Um, my wife stayed home with our kids and, uh, but I just wanted to try to do the best I could for my family. And eventually I got to a place financially, as I said before, when I was making three bucks an hour, when I first became production manager of the, of the Paradise, I was making like two fifty a week, you know. So there was not a lot of money in there for a long time, you know. Mm -hmm. I do I do pretty well now, but for a long time I didn't make a lot of money. I had to do um, for a long time. I got paid by the show, so if I did two hundred fifty shows a year, I could make a decent amount of money. Yeah. What did your parents think of your life choices at that time? <laughs> Well, the, uh, it was, I think, when I bought my first house in 1992 that my parents finally realized that this might be a real job. You know, and, you know but in the, in the days that I started in the 80s, um, it wasn't a job that, you know, there was a, it wasn't a career path. You know, uh, this was, in the 80s, the rock and roll was still the wild, wild west. And it was something that you did until you got a real job. And I never got a real job. But what happened was that an industry grew up around me and a really, you know, interesting industry. And, you know, and now we're a multi-billion dollar industry and that they kind of evolved without anybody ever looking, you know, we never, nobody ever saw us coming. And we just kept doing it. Uh, if nobody was going to stop us, we would just keep doing shows. And next thing you know, we realized that, hey, this is, kind of a sustainable yeah. model that we've created. Well, not only that, but, um, you know, said there was much more in the 80s. It was very skin of your teeth. You know, we never thought twice about, um, I remember, you know, as a, as a young stagehand, you know, climbing genie towers and focusing, climbing across a truss that was ground supported and focusing, you know, you know, by shinning across a truss that was ground supported and you climbing these towers. And, you know, and if I saw somebody doing that today, I would fire their ass. 
you know, that, you know, that, you know we w- wouldn't do that, you know. I remember when harnesses first came in and the old guys wouldn't wear them. And, you know, and now nobody would go up without one. You know, we, we're a lot smarter than we were. You know, we, we, were, we were dumb, you know, but, but we, you know, God damn it, we did, you know, the show went on every single day. So you were doing this uh, definitely pre-OSHA standards of any, of any sort. No, and we were making it up as we went along. We really were. And, um, you know, I can remember doing live tie-ins where we would just, um, you know, we would shove some wires behind the main wires coming in to a building. And, um, you know, and just, you know, just loosen the lug up, hold the, hold the, uh, the main feed in and shove another wire behind it. You know, and uh, that was certainly not OSHA approved. And and if you, uh, you know, and they, you know, you had the guy next to you with the two by four who was going to knock you off the panel in case you fell. <laughs> you got to pick your best friend to hold the two by four. Like, this that's is real. exactly right. Because if somebody didn't like you, they'd leave you in there a little bit too long. <laughs> so I just met you today. Uh, you're my you're my you're my children's godfather now, and hold this two by four and knock me out if. Uh, you see me tense up. <laughs> That's exactly right. But, you know, so as he said, we, we were making it up as we went along. You know, we can really count uh, the, the beginning of this industry, like at Woodstock and, you know, and um, it was just something that you were going to do for a while. And, um, I, you know, I was lucky enough to, uh, to work for one of the legacy promoters. And, I, you know, and and strangely enough, I still work for that same man today, you know, wow. and, uh, you know, so I don't think there's a very many people, if any, uh, who can say that they've worked for the same person their whole career. And then you say in the music business. And I don't think anybody can say that. So, um, you know, I, I work for a guy named Don Law and, uh, you know, he was the book in the paradise when I first started there. And, um, you know, at, at different times he owned it and then he sold it off and owned it and sold it off. At one point, uh, we took on some new partners at the Paradise and I was in a meeting with them and I said, you know, I'm on my seventh ownership group here. And uh, so I, went, I survived through different, seven different owners of the Paradise, yet I was in the back doing, doing Don's shows because Don was always the booker. And he sometimes was the owner and he sometimes wasn't. And, uh, but I, you know, I was always back there and they, and I said, Hey, nice to meet you. You're the new owner. Great. I'll be in the back doing shows. And, uh, so it was an interesting time, you know, I, um, tried and true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I stayed at the paradise until, uh, 2009, you know, I didn't go to a lot of uh, paradise shows, um, you know, in the, Ots or the the O's, I uh, was would advance every single show, but I, I stopped and I stopped advancing shows in two thousand nine. The guy who is the production manager now was my best man at my wedding, wow. and I said I said by the way tomorrow you have to go to the paradise and work there for two weeks while I'm on my honeymoon, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, and he's still there to this day. So, you know, as I said, we got married in 86. And, uh, you know, so he's, he's been there 30 years. Wow. So that's it's kind of a unicorn situation in our industry where anybody gets to work for somebody longer than four or five years. I can't think of anybody that I worked for for more than five years. For you to be put, do it, talking about 20 and 30 years, that seems like a, a, something that happened in the generation before me. Well, yeah, and, and and I am the generation before you. But as you said, I I started forty years ago. Mm-hmm. I've been a production manager for thirty five. As you said, I became the production manager. I think it was early eighty five. Um, Eurogliders, maybe it was an Australian pop band, really mm-hmm. really good pop uh, Australian pop band. I think that was my first show. But Johnny Winter and uh, the Church, and uh, you know who are the, those great early bands. You know, um, and then in 89, I started, um, uh, I started doing uh, other shows. I started working at uh, doing theater shows and doing uh, arena shows. Uh, 1990, I, um, I, I was down um, 
at uh, Foxborough Stadium, uh, helping out uh, uh, producing stadium shows. And um, the Foxborough Stadium is where Gillette Stadium is today, or actually the parking lot of Gillette Stadium. Mm-hmm. And it was a shitty, shitty, shitty little uh, NFL stadium that they built for $6 million. And I think they got ripped off. You know, they, it was, uh, they had 10 seats. Uh, it was brutal. And every time we were down there, it rained like crazy. The catering tent was on a, was on a slant. And, you know, you'd sit there and have the water flowing across your feet. And, um, and I was like, because I was the new guy, I was the overnight guy. And I remember, you know, like doing, um, you do production out and then you try to convert all these guys because it was a non-union situation in those days. You convert, try to convert those guys to steel guys. And by four or five in the morning, they're all walking off their call saying, fuck this. And you take your golf cart, you drive to the other side of the stadium and you watch the sunrise and you question not only your career choice, but your actual will to live, you know, and you would, you'd be sitting there and knowing that, you know, like you're going to be down on that field driving a forklift before too long because the, the new fork operators aren't coming on till six. And, um, you know, but, you know, and that's why I learned how to drive a forklift. It's on, on the uh, on the on the field Damn. of uh, the old Foxborough Stadium, they had the worst There's astroturf. There's nothing that you can't do. They had the worst astroturf in the NFL. Worse than even the Veterans <laughs> Stadium and thing. You know, I'd rather play football on in the parking lot than on that that field. But uh, oh man! But I learned to cut my teeth there. You know, one of my, uh, you know, but. Um, you know, the uh, the first show I ever did down there, I think, was uh, David Bowie, uh, New Kids on the Block, and Paul McCartney. It was a, it was a three in a row, back to back to back. Wow. And, and you know, it's a, a great way to kick it off. Yeah. You know, uh, the Magic Summer, I think it was, 1990. But So what do you, you think know, about musical acts these days? Do you still go to shows? I have... I, I, there was a period of time when I wouldn't go to shows. I wouldn't even, you know, like people would say, did you see that band? You know, and, and I'd say, you, they pay me to run them, not to watch them. Um, and I would forget to, you know, and even bands that I liked, I'd forget to watch them. But um, more recently, uh, I'm kind of getting back into music, you know, but I'm mostly oh. getting back into the music that I listened to as a youth, you know. Um, you know, the, you know, Neil Young and Jackson Brown and these people who made such an impression on me that was such a part of my life growing up. You know, I saw the, um, at the Keel Auditorium in St. Louis, Missouri, I saw the the dark side of the moon the first time it came around. And um, it changed my life. You know, it was the first production show. I remember the ads on the radio, you know, four semis of, of product of, of lights and sound coming your way with Pink Floyd. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, in those days, you know, um, maybe, uh, you know, there was a, maybe a box truck full of, of, of speakers and, uh, you know, and a couple of genie towers with, with some 12 lights on them. And those were, that was concert sound, you know, and, uh, you know, four semis, you know, that, that was unheard of. I remember they had a, a laser on a mirror ball, you know, which, you know, of course you wouldn't allow it today because the mirror, the uh, laser right. was going right into the audience and it, it, the mirror ball stopped turning and the, the laser stopped on a guy near me and he started screaming because he was just like freaking out because he, you know, he might've been taking too much acid or whatever it was. <laughs> but, you know, I did, uh, I did a lot of uh, shows. I, I did with uh, Charlie Hernandez, uh, David Bowie, we did one of the very first webcasts, uh, you know, down at the Orpheum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember we're sending this webcast out in three different formats. And uh, the, uh, this is um, where we were at in these days, you know, so I'm still, you know, way before, we're still not, we, don't, we still don't have uh, cell phones yet. But uh, I think the, uh, we had dial-up, DSL, and ISDN. And so we're sending that on these three formats. And, you know, like, so it would go there and it would buffer, 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 buffer for about, you know, 
10 minutes and then you'd watch 20 seconds on a, on a two inch by two inch screen. Yeah. And then, and then you, uh, you know, then buffer, 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 buffer. And I remember Charlie coming up and he'd been out in this, in the, uh, in the lobby where we had the little um, webcasting studio set up and he goes, Hey Tim, our jobs are safe. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we were, you know, like it wasn't the webcasting was never going to happen <laughs> at least, you know, as we, as we knew it then, you know, certainly, you know, that's all that we have right now, but, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you know, in those days, uh, you know, as I said, I started out before the internet, uh, was invented. I remember when the internet came in, you know, and, uh, wow. Thank you for, for cutting your teeth on that one so that we can have all the wonderful things that we have these days. Yeah, well, David was very far ahead of his time. He was the first musician, I think, who saw the internet as having potential to market music. And, you know, he had a, a whole fan club that was internet-based. And uh, yeah, there was not a lot being. of... Yeah, he was he was an amazing uh, guy, and he saw stuff that we we couldn't see yet. Um, uh, has been has a life in the industry ruined your concert going appeal? Do you still do you still enjoy concerts? It's it's difficult. For a long time, I couldn't sit there and watch a show. I had to like you know like tape my arms down to the armrest because I. <laughs> I just wanted to go back there and say, hey, you know, this, this curtain is out, off, off kilter. You know, this truss is a little bit, you know, at a bad angle. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, the guy could take a couple of 2K off of that, you know, the, uh, the mix. But, uh, you know, now I, I do go. I, I, um, I remember I went to a desert trip out in the, uh, on the, um, the Coachella site a couple Great of show. years ago with my wife. And, you know, it was, uh, we went for our anniversary. I think it was our 30th and, um, you know, and it was just like, you know, there were six bands that I'd grown up with that meant so very, very much to me. And, um, I'm out in the desert and, um, you know, I remember, you know, Neil Young is singing Harvest Moon and the full moon is rising between two palm trees and I'm, and I'm bawling my eyes out and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I still do love music, you know? So yeah, you were talking about, you know, what makes, you know, this thing special and, you know, I, dear Don always said it, you know, he said, this show is only going to happen in this city on this day one time we're selling a very unique experience and you know and you're shoulder to shoulder with people who have are having the same experience with you and you know and i'm sorry you know you can strap a, few, a couple of phones onto your face but you're never going to have that experience of being in a community with other people sharing the same exact thing that you are and you know and uh, and that guy on stage or that woman on stage is singing that song that got you through that tough time in 10th grade. And, you know, and even though, you know, it's 20 years later, that, that, that same connection is happening to that song that you had in, in 10th grade. And, you know, there's nothing, nothing that's ever going to replace that. And that's the magic of, of what we do. And that's why I still do it. You know, every few years I'm thinking, Oh, I got to retire. I'm, really getting too old for 20 hour days. And then, you know, I think about it and I said, no, I'm going to recommit to this and I'm going to, and I, you know, I, because I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy who's been there too long. And we all, we've all seen that guy, especially in the house positions, you know, that audio guy who should have retired or should have hung it up is miserable every single day of our life. I'm not miserable. I love, I love what I do. I love the people I do it with. You know, I try to empower the people that work for me in order to have the same kind of feelings that I do about helping people out. And, um, you know, I, as I said, I started out in the, in the food service. So I learned about, you know, service industry. We're a service industry. You know, we have to help people, you know, and 
one of the things, you know, if they need, you know, you know, 20, 50 pounders of CO2 or they need, you know, something else, you know, they need a generator out back, you know, we have that for them. But, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, that we stay committed to what we do and, you know, we're, you know, we're sitting at home right now, but, you know, I'm going to get back to it and, uh, I'm, you know, and I'm going to help people put on the best possible show that they can. Those are all very wise words. It kind of sounds like the only thing worse than working 20 hour days is not working 20 hour days. I was surprised that I was uh, able to uh, roll into it as much as I could, as I did. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. I, uh, but uh, as you said, I, it's an addiction for sure. It is. It, you know, like you, like you said, you know, like it wasn't the money that was drawing me in. You know, I, I certainly, you know, I do well now because I've been been doing it for 40 years. But, you know, like it certainly wasn't the money at first. Um, you know, as a, I had gone from being uh, making 300 bucks a week as a, as a bartender to working 40 hours a week, making 80 bucks a week. And, and I was loving it. And I was, you know, because I was in the show, I was working with people you know, that I grew up listening to, you know, I remember, you know, doing a Muddy Water show and then Jesse Colin Young is in there the next day and he's, and he's saying, you know, he said, I've been doing this for a long time, but I couldn't figure out, you know, like he said, and I just have trouble getting it up sometimes, but, you know, how can Muddy Waters, you know, like, you know, do it every day, but, you know, he can. And it's, um, you know, but we've been able to, um, you know, just I've I've seen pretty much every single one of my idols, you know, um, and I've been able to work with them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that's I, probably it's, one of the biggest benefits of being the house guys. You get a constant stream of new friends coming through. Exactly. And and, you know, the the road guys, you know, there's not that many of them. So I see a lot of guys, you know, especially for a while there, I would see some of them two or three times a year. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, there's some lifelong friendships and there are people who knew me before I got sober, you know, and, uh, there are people who knew me, you know, uh, you know, just as, as the paradise guy. And then there's some people who knew me as an amphitheater guy, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, you I know. Imagine there's a lot of people coming through the paradise going, Hey, where's Tim? He's over at the amphitheater and they go to the amphitheater and like, Hey, where's Tim? Well, he's over at the paradise. Well, shoot. I was kind of looking forward to seeing Tim while I'm here. They did. That's exactly right. And you know, I get calls from guys and they said, Hey, I'm coming to Boston. I know it's not your show, but you know, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And of course I'm going to help them. And you know, they said, yeah, I know it's an AEG show, but you know, what should I know? You know, who, who's, who's who in the, in the local crew, you know, and do you want to come down to the show? And, and, uh, you know, and it's, it, you know, I, I, I'm very blessed, you know, that, that I have a good reputation and that people still want me to help them. Um, yeah. So you kind of mentioned the communal ritual enrichment of going to shows we even get kind of a, a an extra benefit because we are we still get the communal ritual of the show, but we also get a paycheck at the end of the day, and we also kind of get to steal part of the applause. Is that something that you're you're finding lacking these days? Is that the communal ritual and the applause? Uh, the the applause. If I do my job right, you never knew I was there. You know, the only time you know I'm there is if things screw up and all of a sudden I'm running around on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you see me on deck, then, then, then there's a problem, you know. Um, but so um, the, the satisfaction is, you know, in, in, in producing the, uh, the event and having it go, you know, as, as well as flawlessly as it can. And there's always going to be some sort of an issue. Uh, yeah. So if anybody sees Tim on stage, that's the that's the last place you want to see Tim. You definitely want to see Tim out in front of house or back on the loading dock. That's the best place to meet and hear yep. some stories. Yeah. The uh, 
I remember uh, we were doing a show at, at uh, Xfinity, and uh, all of a sudden um, the 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 lights go out, and um, we go running towards the electrical room, and uh, turns out that we had blown a, a sixteen hundred amp fuse in uh, the of the main service into the building, and uh, there's you know there's three of them, but so we killed the, the service, and the emergency lighting system came on. And we happened to have a spare and these fuses cost about a thousand bucks a piece. And um, so I, I, we open up the cabinet and I start to change this fuse and uh, the production manager says, hey, you got this. And I said, I fucking hope so. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I changed the fuse uh, and uh, we, not only did we have the show, but we made curfew and uh, the artist, I think, was in his uh, dressing room in the dark, having getting a massage. So he never even knew that that we had lost power. But I had it was a really um, important show, and it was like three senior vice presidents of Live Nation and uh, one of the the top tour managers in the world watching me sweat bullets while I changed in this uh, fuse. That you know, on on one side uh, there was four four. Uh, um, bolts holding it in and two of them were, were were super loose and two of them had welded on and I had to break <laughs> the tempered steel to, to replace the steel to replace the fuse and I did it and we've got the fuse in and uh and we got the uh, we had the show and uh to a very real degree you were risking your life to make sure that the show goes on as I said you know there's live tie-ins you know that uh that uh that skill came back to me, you know, I did a show in, uh, up in a ski mountain uh, for uh, ESPN. And we were doing, a, a, it was a, a show, it was called the Athletes Appreciation Party. And we had all these ESPN uh, X Games athletes and uh, Winter X2, I think it was, down at Mount Snow. And uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, Godsmack was my headliner, and uh, I had Cypress Hill and Local H on that on that bill. And um, this uh, this room was a great place to drink cocoa, but it was a horrible place to do a show, you know. But <laughs> we uh, we we built a stage at one end of it. We had to build a stage around a pillar, you know. Like I had to custom cut one of the decks, you know, because we had to go around a pillar. We couldn't get our ground support in. We had to circus rig the lights in the front and um you know they also made us uh, do dark stage so that we could feed a thousand espn employees every day and uh so it was it was a pretty challenging show and um right during cypress's set uh the generator uh seized up you know I, he hadn't put enough uh, diesel conditioner into it and you know we're outside in the winter and uh so I go into the basement and I and I find the main uh, power coming into the building, and there's a, uh, a you know an 800 amp service, and uh, for some reason the, the 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 line side was double lugged, and you know which is totally illegal. You know you can double lug the load side, but you can't double lug the line side. Right. And um, so we we unhooked the feeder from the generator. And we were running around like the Keystone cops with this feeder under our arms. And we ran it downstairs and we tied in to this, to right off the pole, you know, the 800 amps coming right off the pole. And uh, we uh, were able to, uh, to have that show happen too. And uh, we, um, you know, Cypress, you know, wasn't able to finish their set, but we got Cypress to go out there and do a couple of songs with Godsmack. And so these guys saw this amazing show that, you know, they, they never would have seen because we would never have seen Cypress jamming with Godsmack if, you know, it hadn't been for that power failure. Man, you are like an eye patch and a, and a parrot away from being an honest to God pirate. I mean, you're, you're risking your life, you're breaking the law, you're doing breaking whatever you can to make sure that the, the show happens without, with, without, the the adoration of the crowd they they don't know that what you did no then they uh they'll never know but you know we did um 
I did a similar event where we were able to 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 do a mashup of bands that should never have played together. You know, we um, did a, a a special event uh, in Boston, and um, this blizzard was coming in, and uh, so the band had uh, my headliner. They blew off their the, the show was on a Saturday. The, the, the headliner blew off their their Friday show because it was going to get snowed out anyway. And they came directly to Boston and, um, and I, and I met the, uh, the tour manager and I said, you know, we're going to get so much snow. We're not going to be able to do any catering. So let's go right now. So he and I went to Whole Foods and we took the rider, we ripped it in half. He shopped half of it. I shopped half of it. We, uh, we, we got the rider, we put it on their buses. Um, and then I ended up having to spend the night in the venue because I wasn't going to be able to get there and back. Um, I remember waking up the next day, I tried to go outside and there was so much snow up against the door of the venue that I couldn't open the door. I finally found a door that was under a balcony and I go out there and there's three feet of snow and I shovel my way out to the tour bus and the tour manager had spent his day on the bus and, um, the uh, the governor is closing down the city, and um, but because we had loaded in a lot of the stuff the day before, uh, all the AV stuff, we we loaded the band in. They had um, just played there, so they had uh, files in. We were able to uh, to set them up, and uh, I got one guy to walk over to help me. So it was just two of us, where it would have been a crew of eight or ten, you know. And we loaded the band in, set them up, and uh, Sharon, uh, the uh, the headliner was Grace Potter and the Nocturnals, and the uh, opening act was supposed to be Sharon Jones. And Sharon was in a hotel in Boston, a block away, and um, but the Dap Kings were going to drive up, and uh, and uh, Sharon's manager calls me up and says, "Well, I need to, I need this paycheck. I need to, uh, you know." And uh, so I uh, went to. Uh, um, I went to uh, Grace and I brought Sharon with me. I said, listen, um, you guys need to learn three songs, you know, together. And so I need to, I need to put Sharon on stage. And um, so they, they did it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the snow cleared, the governor opened up the, uh, the city and people came in and they saw Sharon Jones playing with Grace Potter. And it was magic. It was amazing. And I think uh, they did uh, This Land Is Your Land and um, uh, Papa, uh, Papa Don't Preach and uh, one other song. And it was just it was just magic. But we, we were able to make it, you know, so that everybody could get a paycheck. And, and uh, the people who were able to come out in the snow had a magical, magical uh, experience. What a fun demand that you had got to make there. Yeah. And I just said, threw her in the room and said, learn three songs. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of touched on something I want to ask more about. What are What is the progression of writers and contracts like? I would imagine that you had, did you have more requirements in the 90s than we do now? Or did you have less requirements then? Well, one of the things in the 80s and 90s is that we didn't sign the contracts. <laughs> you know, uh, we didn't. Um, right. They were... It was, it was a handshake business, you know, there were, there was 10 legacy promoters around the country, all the agents knew them, you know, their word was their bond. And we didn't sign the contracts until maybe after the show played. Um, you know, I remember getting sued one time and the guy's going, well, where's the signed contract? And I said, well, there isn't one, well, you know, you know, the band, <laughs> the band would show up and play and we would pay them. And, you know, and that was the agreement. Um, and the back then the uh, the show the contracts and riders, I think were a lot more negotiable. You know, okay. we we would uh, have these uh, stamps. You know, they would cross everything out, and uh, like we'd cross out the you know the whole hospitality page, and we had a stamp that said "Adequate Hospitality Provided," and uh, you, you guys would say, "What the hell is this? What the hell is this?" And uh, what does this mean? I said, it "Means we're going to have a talk." And, you know, so adequate for a guy who's selling out was going to be different from a guy who was selling 20 tickets. And they, everybody knew that and everybody was fine with that. So there, you know, nowadays, you know, the contracts are signed and, you know, so it's a little bit different. 
Uh, we're, as you said, we're a huge multinational corporation now. Right. You no, know, it's not just a handshake deal. I would imagine that it, it took lawsuits for people to start realizing that contracts needed to be signed, but it also took a, a degeneration of trust for those contracts that have to be signed. It, it had to, their requirements weren't met so many times that they had to kind of push like, no, I really need these contracts to be, to be met. Whereas it used to be just a handshake was a, a lasting bond. It was. And, um, I don't know what it, it was a degeneration of trust, but, um, you know, but I, you know, I still get these guys who come in and say, well, this is in my rider. And I said, listen, if it's on page 22 of your rider and you really need it, you know, like you send me a one sheet or make sure that we bring yeah. it up in advance or, you know, come on, you know, like I do read the, the riders, but I'm, I'm skimming, you know, as I said, 250 events a year, you know, so we're, I'm somewhere in near six or 7,000 shows. Yeah. And uh, so it's hard to make it public, but you, there's a, there's a standard that if you're selling out, I'm going to read all, I'll take the time to read all 22 pages. But if you're not selling out, I'm, I'm going to skim your writer. I, I might, I might pay a little less attention. And I, and I don't mean to put artists in a, in different categories at different levels, but it's, it's the honest when you've got, you have to cut out, some of the you can only pay so much attention to some of these bands because they some of the writers get very demanding and i would i would go as far to say i would imagine on your side you see them being overly demanding sometimes well and also not every not every situation is the same and so right what you know like a a a, a, a i had a lot of bands that were huge in europe and they'd send me their european you know arena riders and you know they're doing small clubs in the united states and so none of it applied mm -hmm. and you know so um that's why i still like to talk to people on the phone like, you know yeah. I, I'm, I'm super old school on that you know like email is great but i think the email and texting is a great way to miscommunicate and if you talk to people on the phone you can really get uh, you know figure out what's what's what i can also get a sense of who you are and you know because sometimes i get these riders and it, and they're super well this must be done and that must be done i said well what a douche and <laughs> uh but you know and it turns out that oh you know like they you know they were just trying to you know as you said just trying to get their needs met and i said well maybe there's a better way to do that and and also people have you know as you said seven thousand shows later most people have done a show with me they know that i'm going to try really hard and um you know within the budget constraints that we have you know so you know where people will uh give stuff up for me that they won't give up for other people that's a great point sometimes it's not about the signed contract it's about the relationship that you have with the promoter and the production manager it's absolutely the relationship and we're really um we're a relationship business and people who forget that uh you know as you said there's a lot of guys in my generation we worked our ways up you know like i was the you know i was a stagehand i was on the loading dock i was you know i was a lighting guy i was a sound guy i you know was a video guy i i did all that work i i did the work and so i know what you're doing and you know and now there's a lot of people who are coming in from the top and they're coming in from a, uh, from a school or they're coming in from the, you know, like, as you said, I spend a lot of time on Excel now, but a lot of the Excel guys are coming in and they haven't spent a lot of time on stage. And so, um, you know, they don't realize the importance of these relationships and, you know, like, well, I sent out a full email and I'm not going to, I'm not going to answer your text. I, I don't check my voicemail. Like, no, oh, come on. You know, the, we're a relationship business. I want to know who you are before you get to my building. Yeah. Uh, Tim, this, this podcast has flown by. I, I could talk to you for several more hours. I will have to wait until I'm coming through Boston and we'll have to go out and uh, turn one of your 20 hour days into a 22 hour day so I can hear the rest of these stories. Well, it was really uh, a pleasure. To thank you so much. Really a pleasure to talk to you today, and uh, I hope that uh, people listening, you know, get a chuckle or two. I appreciate your time. This has been really uh, a pleasure. I uh, I miss 
being able to come to Boston and uh, and hear your story. So this is uh, as much as I would rather do it over a handshake in a pub somewhere. We this is uh, this is where we're at these days. So thank you for making the time. You're welcome.